working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is accomplished drummer and spiritual teacher Steve Sinatra. Stephen has dedicated 15-plus years to making his living as a full-time professional studio and touring musician. He's toured and shared the stage with many nationally recognized artists, such as Sarah Buxton, Pat Green, Richard Marks, Vertical Horizon, Billy Gilman, Joe Nichols, Little Big Town, Hunter Hayes, and many others. After spending 10-plus years performing with these notable artists, he had achieved the dream that he embarked on as a child. Still feeling unsatisfied and unfulfilled, he was inspired to dig deeper as to why. That tough question led him to spending the last four years examining and finding answers to some of life's tough questions. As he refines and organizes the information, he roots it through self-experience and teaching it to others. The unique blend of experiences and teaching modalities he uses are all linked to three categories, source, science, and sound. SourceScienceSound.com is also the website where Steve can be found offering resources for those asking the same tough questions. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. We are also on Stitcher and Google Play. When you're on iTunes, please subscribe. This helps us grow. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support what we do here at the podcast, Working Drummer, there are two ways that you can do that. We offer a PayPal button on the front page of the website. You can also find us at Patreon, at Patreon slash Working Drummer. Any donation is much appreciated, and it helps us cover the expenses of producing this podcast. So I'm looking at April 15th and thinking about what I need to do to get ready for the tax season. But for you, my friends, I've got something a little bit more exciting to tell you about that is also due April 15th. Shure Microphones is throwing some support behind the podcast for the month of March in exchange for us to share with you some information about a drum contest you should consider. It's called Drum Mastery 2019, the Shure Drum Contest. The grand prize is a five-day, four-night trip to London with two days in the world-famous Metropolis Studios, a one-on-one drumming workshop with Ash Sohn, a drum miking workshop with a pro engineer, and $5,000 in Shure gear. All you have to do is submit a video under five minutes of you playing a drum solo. Again, that's a drum solo, so no musical accompaniment. Second and third prize winners will receive Shure gear worth $3,000 and $1,000 respectively. Lastly, this contest is worldwide, and there are 45 finalists chosen from 44 different countries. And if you're one of these 45, you will receive a Shure MV88 Plus video kit. If you don't know what that is, it's worth a Google. I personally think this prize alone is worth submitting a video. You can apply online at drum-mastery.shore.com. We will have a link in our show notes and on the website. Get on it, friends, and win some cool stuff. So just a quick note before we get started, we've split this episode up into two parts. There was so much useful information that we got from this interview with Steve Sinatra that we decided to split it up into two parts. So here is part one 
of my interview with Steve Sinatra. My, my mom would be with me. My mom just all along the way has been really uh, took in a, a deep interest in my my music with me, and I've been able to share a lot of my excitement and, and victories and 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 you know tragedies all, all along the way with her. But she always kept an eye on me, and and I she you know, buy me a record. And before I even looked at the credits, I I go, Oh mom, this is, this is Greg Morrow or Oh mom, this is Lonnie Wilson. And she goes, how do you know that? And I had, you know, focused in on the details of what makes them them so much like the tones of their drums, yeah. the types of fills they would play uh, that I could tell her who they were. And I, I'd say, you know, Test me, check me, go, go, you know, open the book up and, and you know, open the, the CD credits. This is back before, you know, streaming. I feel like I'm dating myself a little bit right. uh, where you actually would get the disc and you'd have the sleeve to look at who played on the on the record. And, and she'd just be floored every time, you know, that I, you know, get it at least 90 percent of the time. Yeah. I love that stuff, man. And, and, and I think that is the end result of intense listening and and the takeaway yeah. from all this, it's not just trivial knowledge. It, 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 there's an element of trivial knowledge, but there's also understanding more than just memorizing liner notes, but recognizing some Matt Chamberlain fill that will transcend in, hopefully transcend in, into our playing, or you are on a session and you hear, you know what I hear? I hear Kenny Arnoff in this song or in this chorus yeah i mean for to to elaborate on what you're you're saying to me you know i got into the weeds like that because i loved it so much i i wanted just to immerse myself in it and i wanted to know what made their playing tick the playing of the guys who i love i didn't just want to appreciate it from afar I really wanted to know you know what kind of sticks they were using and how that affected their sound I know Lonnie Wilson uh not personally but I, I'm you know I've seen his setup in, in sessions um and he uses a Zildjian Z you know custom ride which you know at the time I'd be like why would anyone in that genre of music want to want to use a symbol like that yeah it's just it's not what the symbol was designed for you know were some of the thoughts that i was having but then when i really paid close attention like we're talking about you know the way that that type of symbol has a very defined stick definition to it uh it would cut on a recording through the mix really well when you'd ride on it and it didn't sound when he played it and when he touched it and hit it, it didn't sound like a big clangy thing. So all that to say, um, you know, really scoping all this stuff because I really wanted to know everything about it because I loved drums and I loved music and I, and I wanted to figure out how to be, like the the musicians I loved listening to, and then from there, you know, take it a, a level beyond that and start figuring out, you know, what I could do to find my own unique voice. And I I feel like in the more recent part of my life, 
I've learned that it's more about the internal approach that you take not only to the thing that you love, but also the things that are the obstacles that you don't love. And I've been working on finding that same kind of, I'm not going to say excitement because there, there are just those things that really light you up, but that same level of value Hmm. in the things that are the challenges in my life and finding ways that I can find enjoyment and find ways to learn from it so that I can take those back to the thing that I love or find things in the things that are obstacles for me that have nothing to do with music necessarily, you'd think, but find ways that I could be doing things and correlate them back to how I want to play drums or how I, how I want to play music so that I'm always finding ways to be doing something I love. An example would be, you know, I've been away from, from playing for a while and today I was working my part-time job, you know, hours before we, we were doing this interview. And one of the things I'm working on right now and kind of reintroducing myself back into music and to drumming again, I wanted to come back with something that was going to be new for me and really take my, my playing to the next level. And I wanted to play open handed. Um, and, and so in order to do that, I said, okay, how do I start doing that? Well, I, I, you know, I don't have a practice space at the moment. So I said, you know, I can just start using my left hand as much as I possibly can. So I'm on my job, like making coffees at the barista station and, you know, making smoothies at the smoothie station and doing everything at my job where I'm leading with my left hand Hmm. in my everyday jobs that don't necessarily have anything to do with music, but I'm finding ways to start with whatever I've got in my life going on and find ways that I can be working on what I want to implement on the kit right now. There's no reason that there has to be um, a segregation, if you will, between what you're doing now that you feel like, Oh, I want to be, you know, behind the kit more and I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be doing this and we can get stuck in those, those frames of mind. um, And that can limit us, but I'm finding that, from having been stuck in those mindsets, I said, wait a second, I can, I can, you know, work on this stuff. Even when I'm not behind the kit, there's always ways to find ways to work on the things that, that you love. Even when you're not actually practicing, you can be practicing if you want to be. It's, it's great. It's so funny. You say that just again, a couple hours ago for me, I was having a lesson and I was introducing this young student to the idea of practicing creativity and uh, in addressing certain uh, goals we want to accomplish. I was telling him that sometimes when you're trying to think of ways to overcome obstacles, maybe like, and again, I used a weak left hand as, as, the, as the idea. I said, sometimes you have to think beyond what the instructions that I give you, and you have to think of ways to be creative in teaching yourself, not just creative soloing ideas, groove ideas, but find ways to be creative in teaching yourself based on the knowledge that your teacher or YouTube or apps give you 
And so there's an element of creativity that, that comes through in the way we learn. Yeah. I, I, I want to say that I love <clears throat> that, that advice that, that you gave okay. your student. Um, that's something that took me a while to, to figure out, you know, I have a tendency to look up to somebody and want to do something like someone else has already done it, but I'm learning now or a little bit later in life that the magic really happens when you teach yourself or someone teaches you to teach yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where the amazing, um, discoveries happen of, you know, why can't I do it this way? You know, and, and the things like finding a, a certain cool thing at an antique shop that you end up, you know, put throwing over the snare drum or, you know, <laughs> right. uh, whatever, whatever the case might be, you know, you find ways to, again, like we were talking about, bring the thing outside of music into the things that you love and blurring those, those lines and, and being into a mindset of, like you said, being creative and, and always focusing on what you love, not what you don't love. Well, one thing I want our listeners to know is um, you and I spoke before in preparation for our conversation. And man, I thank you so much for taking some extra time with us to do that. Um, Because there's so much to your story here that I think is really going to be helpful to all of us, beginners, professionals, those that have been doing this for a long time. And it's it's the time, it's what you're doing now, it's how you're uh, focusing your energy into something that you have come upon uh, at this stage of your life. And to get to there, you're doing something called Source Science Sound, and you're helping musicians, bands, artists, and people to do what they, they love, continue to do what they love, even when they're feeling unfulfilled even when they've accomplished, like you said, their childhood dreams and then what seems like has fallen short of their expectations, you are offering them a perspective that gives them a healthier way of, of, of seeing this. And I'm, I'm doing a poor job of describing. I wanted to do a quick, like a short synopsis of what this is and then get into the weeds of your history. It's, it's a business that came out of realizing, like you said, that even after achieving and accomplishing everything I desired, I still had some, some emptiness inside me, some, some unfulfillment. And instead of checking out, I decided to check in with Mm -hmm. myself and start gently pulling on that sweater thread. And, you know, two years later, a lot of books read, a lot of life experience uh, had that was missing that I'd never gotten around to do because of the way the cards sell for me. It landed me in a place where I wanted to figure all this out. And 
I don't think I'll ever be fully done figuring it out because I feel like we're always growing and always learning. I feel like the consummate student, but I do feel like I've unlocked some things within myself that have completely changed my life and completely changed the way that I view and approach music. And it felt so important to me and and shifted my life in such amazing ways that it birthed this business because I feel like I wanted to share what I've learned with others with the intention that anyone who's had some kind of lack of fulfillment through music in any way or, or in the music business or in their vocation in any way that it doesn't have to be that way. And what I came to learn was sometimes it's the simplest little things that are just kind of in a blind spot for us that are blocking our road to a much greater fulfillment within ourselves. I like to use the analogy of of driving a car. And nowadays, you know, a lot of cars have these blind spot indicators on their mirror um, to let you know that there's a car there that you wouldn't maybe be able to see, you know, even if you turned back and looked. And I feel like I'm kind of the blind spot indicator for people um, to just maybe show them something that they weren't able to see on their own and Mm -hmm. then give them tools and exercises based on my own experience and all my research that I've done of stuff that really worked to shift these observations I've made and have some big self-realizations. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but that's kind of what the business is all uh, about. I think some of the obvious examples, and I hope this is a, a relatable example, is that when we get to know more of our heroes, there's times we come across, say, celebrities to us, maybe a drummer that we adore, a musician or something like that, and we we get to know these people and we find out there's something about their life that maybe is out of sorts. This isn't a a rule, this isn't a blanket rule, but I'm saying there's times we do this and it's like, we find, it's like, man, this guy is my idol. I love this playing, all this stuff. And then you find out like he can't keep a marriage together or there's some other issue. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Is that a, is that a fair example or fair assessment of? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I could, I could elaborate on that and say that one of the big epiphanies I had, which is really a bit of a mind boggling thing at first is that the things that were in the way of achieving these careers that we desire, um, these success stories that we look at, the things that were the most in the way for me that were actually the energetic blocks of what kept me from leveling up in my music career 
were the areas of my life that had nothing to do with music. They didn't have anything to do with my vocation. Yes. Um, yes. I, and to elaborate on that, just to give you a little bit of an analogy uh, and just kind of humor me here for a second. <laughs> if, if I, if I said, Matt, you're, you're staring at a mirror and I said, if you smile, will the mirror smile back at you? That's for you to answer. That's for me to answer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> today, yes, I think so. Okay, it's not. It's not a. It's not a trick. There's no trick questions here. <laughs> um, so if you, if you smile at the mirror, the mirror would smile back at you, right? Yes, today it would. Okay, because I know there's and, days it wouldn't. Okay, and if I said now. Matt, wink at the mirror, but make the mirror not wink back at you when you wink. Could you do it? Oh, boy. I, I, I'm not a winker. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, do you ever have somebody that winks at you and you're just kind of like, what, what is that about? It weirds you me just out. You wink both eyes because you're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can, I can physically wink. It's just that I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably. I hope I'm not sabotaging this exercise. Um, it's totally okay. You know, yeah. the, the long, the long, the long short of it, without you know, like going too far into this, is that the situations and circumstances in our lives are reflections. They're reflections to show us where we're out of balance in within ourselves and the areas of life that could have nothing to do with vocation are actually the biggest and loudest reflections. Like you were using the example of a, you know, a, a drummer we loved and you find out that their, their relationships are, are in shambles. That could be a reflection to tell you that you're not stepping into your power in every way that you could be. And those things aren't there to hurt us. They're actually there to, to help us. And when I, when I had this paradigm shift through learning about energy work and learning about the metaphysics of, of the universe and tried tried to apply some of these things in the most simplistic way possible. Um, at, you know, and I did a lot of this studying and learning at the Guided Light Healing School, which I am a teacher at here in Toluca Lake in Los Angeles. When I applied a lot of these techniques, I was blown away and couldn't believe that making a shift and shifting my perspective on like mending a relationship in my, in my life with a family member or with my partner that, that, and, and the ways that that all of a sudden like brought this onslaught of phone calls, uh, you know, for more gigs or, you know, or some, something else that was kind of seemingly a windfall out of nowhere. But I began to learn that there was, patterns and connections and correlations that these things just didn't happen out of nowhere. There were actually reasons why these things happened. And I began 
to see these enough and begin to be able to consistently replicate the pattern by implementing these exercises over and over again to where I was, I'm able now to like have a client come in and be able to energetically and intuitively look into where these imbalances are and give them exercises to say, Hey, if you do this, this is actually blocking this. And when you do this, the simple, you know, couple minute exercise, that's going to shift your, shift your mind, shift your energy, um, that, it's going to change everything in, in another area of life that you've been maybe hitting a ceiling in. We have a, a, a choice of viewing something as positive or negative, right? So that's, that's kind of like the, the woo-woo um, uh, you know, perspective, right? That, that you can shift your vantage point on something, but that being said, um, sometimes we just get stuck in, in our emotions and sometimes we get stuck in how we choose to view something. And that's not a bad place to be. The, the gift in that is that nothing in our lives are actually there to make things more difficult for us. It's actually just trying to show us the quickest path to recentering and rebalancing ourselves. And on the the thread of thought of reflections, like we were talking about, if we miss the tiny reflections in our lives, like if we're walking and we trip over something, that would be a baby reflection, let's let's say. And if we miss, you know, 20, you know, 30, 40, even 50 of those reflections, the universe has to get our attention in some kind of way. So they end up throwing a bigger obstacle at us like a a fender bender, you know, car accident or, or, you know, something that's like an explosive, uh, you know, relationship argument, something that we can't ignore. And it's most people's frame of mind to view that stuff as bad. Mm. It's difficult for people to look at that from a perspective of, this is here to help me Um, because no one was ever taught that that's even possible. No one even, you know, there's no, there's no one else or any other school out there that I know about other than the one that I've been studying at that shows how this stuff is actually here to help and give, gives tools and exercises to really paradigm shift out of that. So That's a long answer to say that we're powerful creators. Every single being on on this planet is a powerful creator. So if we're doing any action, we're literally sending a vibrational frequency out from our bodies like a satellite dish. And whatever we're sending out into the universe, we're going to magnetize back to us. And it's going to be more of whatever we're sending out. Mm -hmm. 
Does that make sense? It, it, it completely does. Yes. I know sometimes I have a tendency to get, um, a, a little bit, uh, heady and I'm doing my, 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 no, that, no, my it's, best to... but at least you're following your own thread. Unlike me, <laughs> I got lost. <laughs> I got lost with myself. I, you know, it, it, it's almost like I, there was a financial company that had a that had a quote, or some guy that ran this big company that I think we we all know of. I can't remember the name of it right now. That, but he was basically like he was saying that it's not what happens in life; it's how you react to it. And I, it sounds like what you're saying also is that what are seemingly negative things, like tripping, there's 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 something in there that that's good about it. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, okay. I'm um, I'm I'm saying that everything in life, from what I've learned up until this point, has a positive and a negative polarity, and we can choose to look at mm. anything from its positive or its negative polarity, and. If you want to get, again, you know, kind of really out there with it under the umbrella of polarities is love or source, as I like to call it. Um, source is is all of it. Love is all of it. And if you can choose to look at everything from a loving perspective, then you're seeing the negative and the positive and you're seeing the positive and the negative and realizing that, that everything here in this universe is absolutely amazing and it completely shifts your experience that you're having. Yeah. I get it. I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. When I saw you here in Nashville at our 200th episode event, was did you have a flight delay that happened? I did. I had a... I had a I had a flight delay of a couple hours, and uh, it was. I definitely feel it was divine intervention um, to allow me to go to your 200th episode um, and connect with you and get to see some people who I hadn't seen in a really long time, yeah. having moved to Los Angeles two years ago. So I'm ultimately didn't even think or get stuck like we've been talking about in, in a perspective of, of going, oh man, my flight was delayed. I was actually like, this is perfect. I get to go to this event that, that Harry Myrie invited me to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and thanks to Harry for reconnecting us. He's been such a great, uh, he was a great guest and he's been a great supporter of the show too. And, and, um, and I think a listener too, uh, for introducing me to Harry. So it's it's amazing how that stuff all works. Somewhat related to what you're you're saying. I mean, it's funny because people ask my co-host Zach and I about the podcast, but people say, "Oh man, or so are you making money at this? Are you monetizing the podcast? We've been doing it for over three three years." And I'm like, you know, not not really. I mean, there's there's a little bit of advertising and there's some. There's some crowdfunding going on because there's expenses involved, and but but he and I share this passion for doing this, and and know that we're just kind of putting some positive things and some learning. What was was Principal Skinner says on The Simpsons? There's learning afoot, 
And and that that I'm not saying that alone sustains us. We are still struggling month to month to try and find ways to to help cover our expenses and different things like that. So I'm not saying that money is not an issue because we're in this to talk about the music business. You know, so that is unfortunate. That is a, a topic that that needs to get addressed. But um, it's been a, a when when there is no money, it has been a good. It continues to be a good thing, and it continues to be a joy to do. You know, so I don't know if that that own personal story is continues to reflect upon this idea that you're talking about. I I, I just want to. Take take a, a minute to acknowledge everything that you've built and and created. I think it's absolutely amazing. And things like podcasts weren't uh, as readily available, or even even maybe not even available at all when I moved to town. And one of the really cool things that happened when I was at that 200th episode was I ended up sitting next to someone who I'd never met before, and, and he was a, a new guy to town. And it was really cool to, to connect with him and, and that he knows about your podcast and he's using it as a resource. And I think that what you're offering people is absolutely amazing. And the information Thank that you. you're offering people you. is absolutely amazing. And it helps show people that it's possible. You can do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's nothing in the way except ourselves ultimately at the end of the day. Right. That is a great, what a great quote. That is great. When you met this person, did you say, do you know who I am? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I like to keep a low profile. Um, you know, if anybody even does recognize me, which, you know, I, I never expect that I'm always caught off guard if somebody does, but even if, if they do, I, I'm, you know, I like to kind of, just be, I just want to be another guy, man. I, I, you know, I don't want to be, it's not my intention to be above or below anybody. You know, I, and I don't want to put people in, in a pit and I don't want to put them on a pedestal. I want to put them in my heart. This episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. I think this is a good opportunity for us to get into who it is you are and some of your history and how it relates to your current life. Um there is so much that you're able to accomplish from, uh, you know, growing up in, in Florida and, and playing music at a very early age and working professionally at an early age, going to uh, Berkeley and moving to Nashville in 2006. I want to talk about some of the gigs that you've done and now that we have a little bit more of an idea of where you are at, where your head is at, where your heart is at. Um, I think some of these stories and some of this experience will have a little bit more weight to it. I do want to bring up the story that we've 
shared and reflected upon a couple times since our I saw you. I reminded you that the first time we met was shortly after you moved to Nashville. It might have been 2006. Uh, I it was, was actually it was actually just to to make a, a note. Yeah. It was actually even before I moved to Nashville. It was before, I, right? I, yeah, I was. That was that audition that you're about to talk about. Yeah, um, I flew in from college from Boston to do that audition. I was. It was like days or or a week before I was about to make my big move from from leaving college to come to to Nashville. So just just to add, throw that. That's in great. That's great. But but there's a there's a lesson in in all of this. It's 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 funny. It's anecdotal. But it's there's also something in here that makes me think I've probably told this story before because that there's there's so much about it that is I think helpful to to a listener and it was helpful and it was a, an epiphany for me too. So a, a good friend of mine included me in a an audition band. I, we were hired to be the quote-unquote house band for a uh, an artist, a singer that needed a whole new band, keyboards, drums, bass, guitar. And so all those elements were brought in to soundcheck the rehearsal space here in Nashville to be on stage, and we performed two tracks with the singer on the tracks, and then when a bass player was brought in to audition, the bass player on stage in the quote-unquote house band would step down, and then they could listen to that bass player, and the singer would be out front. You know, he wouldn't be performing with them, but he'd be out front, and we'd all be playing. And then when drummers would come in, I would step down, and sometimes they would combine different elements of that. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I mean, he was totally starting from scratch, so everybody needed to be there. And you were one of the players. And um, on the tracks, there was, and this is an element that I, I thought was interesting in reflecting upon the story, was it was Manu Kache on the tracks, and there was some classic... Manu Kache feeling fills that were kind of cool and over the bar and all this stuff. And it was pretty cool music, and it was about four or five songs. And uh, they also asked me to help evaluate the players as they came in, obviously the drummers, and, hey, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of that? And it came down to you and another player. And an element of the story that I like to share with people is that there was one player that was playing the parts and there was you and you did not play some of those parts. You did not play exactly what was on the record. You did your thing and it seemed like concentrated on what felt good and what reflected your style. And I mean, fast, the ultimately you were offered the gig and that was an epiphany to me because I'm looking at the guy that learned the parts and played the thing, played all the parts, as I think that guy is better than this other guy, Steve Sinatra, because he's playing all the parts. Well, the artist, the band leader, the people that were there, like, Steve's the guy. I love his feel. I love this his approach. And you were offered the gig. And I'm saying, I mean, it wasn't my choice, but I thought... That's really cool. I I just it's interesting to know that 
it's not about that unless that's a very very specific thing i mean there are gigs where you're like you have to if you play with um neil diamond you have to know every single part right but is somebody else is not going to do that and so that was a such a learning thing for me and we laughed about that because if you want to finish the story about what happened when you got offered the gig, it's awesome. Yes. So um, <laughs> I didn't. I don't. I didn't even know that that piece that that uh, you know we when we talked about it in the pastor. I I overlooked that or didn't stick in my memory that um, you know you were helping make the decision and you actually felt that the other guy was the more appropriate I mean, choice, I, which is re- really cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't remember exactly. And I don't remember how much they asked me about, they would ask me along the way. But when I looked at it, that was, all I can say is learning the part note for note had a, had a level of value to me that um, I thought was important. And I, and I see, I see now every situation is different, but it wasn't the sole reason why somebody gets a gig. Yeah, um, that helps. and yeah, it absolutely does. So you know, to to finish the story, I got offered the the gig, and in almost kind of an overlapping thing, I got it like in the same time frame I got offered that gig. I actually got offered another gig, which was a really really amazing you know thing to have happen to have to choose between two gigs after just moving to town, you know, I, I'm, I was really grateful for that. Um, but I, the other gig that I got offered was actually the one that felt right, um, for me. Yeah. And I ended up going with, with the other gig and it was, it was difficult. Uh, it was a difficult decision to make on, on some levels, but if, you know, my my intuition and my, my my gut it was you know if I'm listening to that 100 percent it was a pretty easy decision you know the other gig was what I really wanted to to be doing and the path I wanted to to be heading down yeah and that was the Sarah Buxton gig is that correct yeah so it was it was uh, it was yeah an artist named Sarah Buxton and at the time she was on Lyric Street Records. Um, again, dating myself a little bit, you know, the record that, uh, like Josh Grayson was on or the record label that Josh Grayson was on. It was the record label that Rascal Flatts started out on. Um, and, uh, and, and yes, I, I went and auditioned against like 10 other drummers for that gig and, and they ended up choosing me there as well. Um, and to, I want to, I would really love to go off on the thread of, of, um, playing the parts versus not playing yeah, the parts. Yeah, I feel please like do. that's a really important topic to touch on because I've been back and forth with myself so many times on, you know, how do I approach, you know, these auditions or how do I approach these gigs that I, I I'm doing everything from the smallest club to the, to the biggest, you know, stadium gigs you know how, how do i do i play the parts that are there or do i not play the parts that are there and after bouncing back and forth and trying both extremes i realized that 
it's learning all the parts that are there and knowing them and having that in your back pocket and then picking and choosing, you know, using that as, as a blueprint, if you will, and then picking and choosing where to color outside the lines based on what you're feeling in the moment of making music mm -hmm. and what gives you the what gave me the ability to do that was having a good vocabulary on my instrument yes and also having a good vocabulary of reading the situation reading the players reading the artists you know some artists who i played with like you know i played with chris jansen way before he kind of hit it really big and chris Chris's gig was a gig where, you know, he, you had to watch him like a hawk because he worked the crowd and worked the room and the way he plays harmonica. I mean, you just had to be with him and every moment was exciting and on the edge of your seat. And that made that gig really fun. So that gig was about coloring outside the lines a lot. And then there were other gigs that I did like the little big town gig where they wanted the record to, you know, they wanted it to, to sound like what they created and what, what was out there for people to listen to. So that gig was a lot more about, um, you know, playing the parts that were there and I've had everything in between um, and both extremes happen. And after having experienced all of that, I've, found that sometimes I've lost myself in trying to be what other people, what I thought other people wanted me to be. And I'm grateful that I've learned through all that experience that I'd rather not get a gig or be told not to do something from the place of being myself and being what, what my sound is that feels good because I don't want to be on a gig trying to make somebody else happy. And again, getting back to the fulfillment thing and ultimately not being fulfilled. I'd rather them get the drummer that they are looking for. That's going to give them what they want. And also I know if I trust myself and, and listen to what feels good for me, that there's going to be an artist out there that's going to want to hire me for me and what I love doing and what makes me feel great when I'm behind the kid. And ultimately that's going to translate way better into the music, into the guys on stage and ultimately into the audiences. Right. And it's going to be a sustaining thing if it ends up being a gear, a, a gear, a gig that lasts for years. Yes, that's a huge, a huge point. You know, we sometimes think that that big carrot gig, you know, is is everything that we wanted and you get that gig, but it's all under these, you know, pretenses of, of us having to do or be something that isn't a great fit for us. And now, that being said, sometimes, you know, in those uncomfortabilities, we learn parts about ourselves that cause us to grow and expand and find new versions of ourselves that are additive and not subtractive. Right. And that's amazing. Right. But 
if it's more of the alternative, which is they're asking you to do all these things that just feel like they're limiting your creativity, limiting who you are, limiting the direction that you want to pursue musically, Mm -hmm. then ultimately I feel like that's not the right gig to be on, regardless of what the money looks like, regardless of what, uh, the prestige of, of the gig might look like. And that if you follow your, your heart and your sound and what feels right for you intuitively, that ultimately you will end up on a gig just as good or better by being yourself. Yeah. I struggle with that as well. I think because I do like to learn the parts. I do like to dig into the parts that, Chris McHugh played or Shannon Forrest played or, you know, Matt Chamberlain played and get inside their head. And, and I have this gig as a vehicle for transcribing and trans and, 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 and trying to do this to make myself a better player. But to your point, what ends up happening is no identifying feature of my own playing and those gigs that we all adore and those recording sessions where you're asked to create on the fly sometimes I'm waiting for someone to tell me what to play and I don't want to be there because those guys some of my heroes are the, the, the some of the best studio players Again, studio players that we have. And, I mean, just three three examples right there. And if those guys truly are people, drummers that I look up to, then shouldn't I be not just studying and copying this Matt Chamberlain fill on this song that I'm playing with an artist, but his approach, his style, so that... I'm then I can start taking it. You know, I, it's okay to love these guys, but how do I do it in such a way that it transcends into my playing more than just cop? Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I feel like the what that what you're talking about, what that is, is finding the formulas that they used yeah. to create the parts, rather than getting rather than just stopping at the part itself. And this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the interview, which is really getting in to the weeds, really saying, how else can I look at this? You know, what else can I derive out of this? Because ultimately if you do something over and over and over again, you begin to see it in different ways. You begin to, to discover new things about it. When you get to that, you know, hundredth, 200, you know, monotonous level uh, sometimes of of playing something, you break through a threshold of of learning something that you might not have if you stopped before that. And I feel like it's sometimes people's tendency to stop and take things just at face value, you know, like we're describing the part itself yeah. and not saying, you know, okay, they're they're choosing to be on the hat here. 
And that's a pattern I'm noticing that makes them unique. And they're doing that maybe when, you know, the vocals are doing a particular thing or when the bass player is doing a particular thing um, and, and really seeing what's making the whole thing click as a unified unit rather than just, you know, I play this part and that's where the boat stops. You know, it's going as, you know, way deeper than that. Yes. It, yeah. Very, very true. I think there's times that you see an incredible stage performance where the actor has the same lines every day and they're doing seven performances a week for months on end. I think that the best actors, we see their performances that are finely tuned and they're finding little nuances to improve upon and I think that there are gigs and there are situations where you're playing the same songs and there's opportunities to to like you say dig a little bit deeper to discover how to make those parts better and better and better yeah I have a great example of that actually Mm -hmm. that's coming to mind as we talk about that I have a a, a bass player friend of mine who lives in New York uh, his name's Andy Seashawn and he's playing for Billy Joel now, but for the longest time he was on the Shania Twain gig in, in, in the peak of, of her career. And it was him and JD Blair were the rhythm section for that gig. And I was, you know, grilling him, um, you know, a few times, probably overdoing it because I love to, you know, hear all the inside details of everything, but having him tell me stories about being on that gig, you need a podcast, man. Oh, he was on the podcast? No, no, you need a podcast, because they're great for grilling oh. people. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, fortunately, I, I, you know, to all you listeners out there, I, I am in the midst of creating a, a podcast, and, and uh, I appreciate you saying that, Matt, because <laughs> I love interviewing people, and I love asking questions. It's nice. It's something I'm, I'm passionate about, so it's it's coming um, and it's it's in the it's in the very near near future and it can be found uh, will be able to be found on my website um, stevesinatra.me um, so awesome. you know keep an eye out for that but uh, all that to say yes i was i was talking to Andy Seashawn and asking him questions about you know being on that gig and he said you know to to the point of you were making mad of, of you know, playing something the same way over and over and over again, you know, Mutt Lang wanted um, these parts played exactly how the record was. And that gives you very little room for creativity. So he said to me, you know, all we had to do to be able to keep it stimulating for us was to find ways to, to play the parts as perfectly as I possibly could. Like if this was the parameters that I was given, you know, how can I be creative within that? And he said it was him and JD making their best effort every night to make it as tight as they possibly could. And they found enjoyment and value Mm. in that Mm -hmm. in a way to, uh, you know, let that be the thing that they focused on because the other things were, parameters that were set based on what the gig was asking for um, and what the musical direction was of the gig that were kind of off limits. So they had to find a way to, you know, keep it fun for them. And, And so that's an example of, you know, saying, you know, what can I do to keep it, keep it stimulating and not just get stuck, uh, in a headspace of 
saying I'm bored or they won't let me play anything else or any of the, any of the, you know, numerous amounts of, of negative ways you could, could look at that. Man, there's a, a wonderful and very impressive list of people that you worked with. There, um, one of the gigs that you did, uh, just for uh, my own sake, I was listening to Vertical Horizon yesterday. I've become a fan of them. Can you tell me about playing with them? I mean, they've had they've had such great drummers working with them over the over the years. Uh, Jason Sutter, Ed Toth, of course, the original uh, uh, drummer for them. Can you tell us about that gig? Yeah, definitely. Um, that was, um, you know, I'm going to be very vulnerable uh, here, and 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 that that gig was is is a bittersweet gig mm. for me. Um, and the reason that is is because I grew up such a fan of their their music, and I you know, remember seeing them on some kind of VH1 performance for the first time. And I just, I fell in love with the songwriting, with, with, with the playing. Um, and their sound was just everything. I I loved everything about it. And, you know, to get back into that research component that I love, I was very up to date on all the details of, of that gig, even when they kind of went quiet, um, for, for a string of years after Ed Toth left the band and was playing with the doobies and, and they hadn't put a record out in a while after their second record, uh, which I think was called go, there was a really kind of, kind of a quiet period. And then they did a a tour, um, a, a small tour, I think, and, and went back out on the road and I caught them when they were in Boston. This is back when I was in college and Craig McIntyre was on the gig. And this is the first time I got to meet him. He's a great LA, um, session and, and, and road drummer and, and in his own right. And a really, really sweet guy. And he, I think something happened where he wasn't available for some upcoming shows that big shows that they had. And by, you know, at the time, at the time, I thought it was a chance encounter. But in everything that I've learned and believe now, I don't believe it was any accident. But I, I, I ran into Matt Scannell uh, at the uh, the songwriting week in Nashville. I'm, I'm blanking on what what it's called, but it happens every year um, in, in Nashville. And he was there, and we were both at a show, and he ended up standing right next to me, and. I mustered up enough courage to, <laughs> and so people uh, know that Matt is Matt's the lead singer, the leader of the, or you know, the principal songwriter guy in that band. Yeah, yeah. And I mustered up enough courage to to talk to him, and was very tenacious <clears throat> in asking, you know, where things were at, you know, with the drumming chair on on the gig, and. I don't remember the details of how it happened, but I, we swapped numbers and I was able to convince him, uh, that, you know, Hey, you know, let, let me come out and audition for you. You know, I, I, I feel like I'd be a really good fit. And for whatever reason, it it ended up happening and I, I flew out to LA and, and, 
went to, um, a, I can't remember the name of it, but a really famous local rehearsal studio here. And he picked me up, uh, Sean Hurley, the bass player picked me up from the airport and brought me to the rehearsal studio. And we played through the tunes and, uh, they loved what I, what I did. And they decided to, to let me come on, on the, the gig. And we, they were preparing for a really big, like VH1 live performance that was going to air on television in the Philippines. And that was the gig, the next gig they had coming up. Um, so I did that gig with them and it went great. And they really didn't have much on the books after that. And they, Matt kept talking about another tour, another tour. Um, and nothing was, was really kind of coming to fruition. I did one other gig with them. It was like a state fair or, uh, you know, a, a fair in, in, in Arizona, I think it was in Phoenix or something like that. And, and the experience that I had doing that was incredible. And I actually only did two gigs with them because what ended up happening was in the, the time frame that they didn't have really much going on, um, Matt hooked me up and tried to get me, uh, some, some more work to kind of, you know, help keep me afloat knowing that he didn't have too much going on. And mm -hmm. he was really good friends with Richard Marks and he, he got me on an audition for that gig. And, uh, I ended up getting the gig and that was a Nashville based gig which is where I was based out of, um, even though the Vertical Horizon gig was kind of predominantly based out of L.A. And long story short, I ended up getting fired from the Richard Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that actually kind of followed me around for a while. Um, the next couple gigs that I, I got ultimately hired on it kept coming up before I got hired <laughs> that there was a, this rumor going around that I got fired from this gig. I couldn't believe like how, how long this, you know, this, this event, you know, this, this firing like followed me around and, and was it like a mini obstacle every time I was being considered for a gig and little big town was one of those gigs. They were like, you know, we, we heard through asking people that, you know, you were fired from this gig and, you know, we, you know, we're, we're concerned, you know, it was that same kind of story. And, you know, finally that, that went away, fortunately, but it was, I, I couldn't believe how long it followed me around and to, to bookend the, the vertical horizon thing. Um, I got the, the reason I got let go and this would be a great lesson for, for everybody. Um, you know, they can, they can learn at, at my expense here. <laughs> I felt, and this goes back to everything that we were talking. So I'm really glad that this is coming up. Okay, I felt good. very strongly when I, when I was on the Richard gig that there were a lot of things that felt like could have been different. that could have unified the music that could have unified the players. And it was really bothering me internally. And, you know, I said, okay, let me, let me talk to the, the band leader and say something to him and just kind of voice my concern. And, and I would 
you know, at the time I was like, well, the band leader will talk to the artist and, and if he likes the ideas and, and, you know, this is how this works. And I was met with, you know, a lot of fear, you know, I was met with like, oh, you know, that, that all sounds great. And I totally agree with you, but, um, you know, I, you got to talk to Richard about that. Um, and I was like, okay. And there were a lot of things about the way the gig was mixed that I was, you know, struggling with. And, you know, long story short, I decided to voice a lot of these things and, and, uh, to, to different people on the gig. And I even voiced some of these things in sound checks to, to Richard. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. And I came across as I was much younger than everybody else on the gig. I feel like that's relevant to say. And I came across as, as, you know, rather than like, you know, being grateful and, and learning from the situation I came across as this, you know, overly, uh, you know, outspoken young kid, um, with, you know, to all the veterans, I'm guessing was the impression that I got and was, didn't know my place, uh, on, on the gig. And that ended up in Richard personally calling me one day and saying, Hey, I just don't think this is, this is working out. So I'm going to let you go. So, and I was really grateful that he, he picked up the phone and called me himself. I thought that was really cool. But that, you know, the reason that that's all relevant is because that pissed Matt off. He wasn't, he wasn't happy about that um, because he felt like he stuck his neck out for me, um, you know, to get me this, this gig and, and said, Hey, here's this great young up and coming drummer. And it ended up, you know, I, I'm guessing it, it probably, he probably felt like, you know, Hey, I, I did this solid for you. And, and this is, you know, you it's kind a, of, yeah. How you repay it. You over, you overdid it. You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and we ended up talking about it. He and I, and, and, you know, I, I saw where I kind of, you know, probably stepped out of the lines uh too far and how that bothered everybody and then that that kind of all was put to bed but then um i ended up getting a call to audition for the joe nichols gig and again this was in that down period there wasn't much of anything going on for for vertical and they kept saying you know there's a tour coming up tour coming up but nothing was scheduled and matt finally called with this string of shows that he had and I auditioned against 14 other guys. I think it was for the Joe Nichols gig at the time and, and was fortunate enough to get it. And the big stipulation about the Joe Nichols gig was whoever we're hiring, it, it's gotta be someone who can do all the shows. It's, it's, you know, the reason that they were looking for a guy is because they just had this like string of, of, subs you know and and there was no consistency to the drum chair at the gig mm-hmm. and so i i had heard from matt that there were these shows coming up you know it was like a like one weekend of shows and i ended up taking the joe gig um because they had like a ton more work but my heart really wanted to do these vertical shows and I took the gig knowing that that was kind of the stipulation, you know, with, with the gig is that you had to do all the shows. And I even mentioned like, Hey, there's this one weekend of shows I you know, I, I can't do cause I, I, you know, I need to do this other gig. And 
I was just caught in a rock and a hard place. And the one guy who they said that they would, you know, be okay with doing the, the gig, uh, Seth Roush, who actually was on the gig right. for me. And sure. he's playing, played for little big town and, 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 playing for Keith Urban now, a great, great drummer. And he wasn't available to, to do the gig and I couldn't find anybody else that they were happy with. And I was, you know, they were like, Hey, you, you, you either have to do these shows or you, you know, it, I don't remember exactly, but I felt like it was that an was ultimatum, ultimatum of some kind. Yep. Um, and I was like, well, shit, I, I, you know, what do I do? You know, do I take, you know, the gig that I really want to be doing shows on that's only like one week in the shows and, and really nothing else, but you know, on the books and it was kind of inconsistent, but my heart was in that. Or do I take the gig that, you know, is fun and I'm enjoying it, but it, it and was a lot more shows and a lot more money. And, and I, I ended up choosing that <clears throat> and not the vertical gigs and I had to call Matt up and, and I was working so hard to find a sub that when I finally got around to calling Matt, it was like really close to when these gigs were. And I ended up putting his back up against mm -hmm. the wall and, and I was afraid to let him know way, way earlier. Um, right. You know, when um, the Jonas yeah. opportunity came up because I didn't, you know, I said, well, you know, I can work it out. And what actually would have worked better. I found out in hindsight for Matt was if I had just told him, if I had just communicated with him, he would have been much more relaxed about the situation. And instead I was afraid to tell him and I didn't say anything. Um, because you know, out of my own fear, out of my own insecurity of him saying, feeling like I wasn't committed to the gig or anything like that. Um, and so when I called him to tell him, you know, let's just say it didn't go well. <laughs> um, to, 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 that's probably the best way to put it. The, the phone call didn't go, okay. phone call didn't go well. <laughs> and, and, uh, I was mortified, man. I, I was, I, I was, I was so like, I didn't even know what to do. You know, I've never had anybody respond to me the way that, that he did and, and, and rightfully so. And <clears throat> so in an effort and to I, avoid, in an effort to avoid confrontation, it, it created a more, uh, a, 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 a worse situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up, you know, I, I feel so vulnerable right now, and I've, I've really no. not told this story to many many people. Okay. I ended up yeah. writing him a very heartfelt, like multiple page email um, because I was so like heartbroken and conflicted about the way the whole situation went down, and and he wasn't like picking up the phone or responding to any of my phone calls, and I, I wrote him that that heartfelt email, and he finally picked up the phone, and 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 we we talked, and you know kind of put it all all to bed but he and i have not uh really communicated since then i have I, and I've, I've made efforts to reach out to him but uh we've never connected since um so i think this is you know but but, but man to tell i know you're feeling vulnerable but at the same time i think there's so much in here that for there's so that's so relatable 
to situations on on all levels of gigs and all all different things in life. And it's like life is full of choices, and sometimes it's not clear what is the right decision. And I think that your heart was in a place that you did not want to. You don't want to, you don't want to give Matt bad news and. Unfortunately, it it led to something that was you know a short time period that created some conflict. But I mean, it came from a it came from a good place. Um, yeah, my my intentions were were very were very pure and and, and yeah. very honest. You know, these are real life situations, like you're saying, that people are confronted with all the time, especially freelance musicians. You know, yeah. they're always oh, yeah. having to decide between one gig or another, you know, decide, do I take the money or do I do the gig that I I absolutely love the music on, but doesn't pay as much. And I think what I was lacking in those situations or what I could have had a greater awareness of was what I really wanted to be doing and where my heart was really at and trusting that it would have worked out if I pursued things in a different way. Now, would I change anything looking back? No, I learned so much from, from all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a rockier road and a rockier path. Um, but I, you know, I, yeah, I, I learned so much experientially from, from that and, and some mistakes I never made again. And and others took me a little bit longer to fully digest and, and, and process. But, um, you yeah, can't that's... you can't just play it safe, man. Sometimes you got to take risks, and and like like you were discussing, like we were discussing earlier on, and the point that you were making is in what this bad situation has turned into something that has uh, shed some positive light on something in your life that you can take away and and use to the use to your advantage moving forward. Yeah. And you know, some of those things were, that was like the first real rock gig I got to do. And, and I got a taste for that and I absolutely loved it. And the, the gigs that we did play were a blast. And I got to play with Sean Hurley. who's one of the most badass bass players mm-hmm. on the planet, in my opinion. And he, you know, was, went on to work with John Mayer and he's an amazing LA session player. And, and, it felt so good to play with him and, and uh, I got to travel to the Philippines. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many things that were amazing about it. And even in the perceptibly difficult obstacles of the way that whole situation transpired for me, there were beautiful gifts that I extracted out of it and beautiful lessons that I extracted out of it. And that can be done for any drummer or any musician from any situation or circumstance, if they choose to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that question was just kind of a side note, man. I'm so glad we, we went there. I'm so glad you opened up to us about that too, because it, it, it's all related to these things that we've been talking about. I do. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked it too. There was, there was a, there was a lot deeper of a well there than you probably expected (laughs) (laughs) these always are these always are Uh, i want to ask i want to get into uh, i want to spend just a brief amount of time talking about the hunter hayes gig 
and then circle back around um, to, to what you're doing now. So there you have it. There is part one of my interview with Steve Sinatra. I know it sounded like we ended quite abruptly, uh, but that's where we uh, hit pause for this part of the interview. Stay tuned next week for the second half of this interview, and then in two weeks, we'll pick back up with Zach Albetta and his interview. Many thanks to Steve for taking some extra time with us to talk about this new journey he's on. I learned so much. I had a lot of personal questions about this, and uh, I hope that you find this information as useful to you as it has been for me. Uh, Once again, we are on YouTube. We are slowly adding 10 episodes at a time as we go through the the back catalog of the podcast that was started back in 2015. And uh, also, please subscribe to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It really helps us grow. And we thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.